Those who argue against the Trinity say that the people who wrote about Jesus' life did not believe that he was God or equal with God. But what did these men actually write about the life of Christ? That's what we're here to find out. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. This is the Dance of Life podcast. My name is Tudor Alexander. Thanks so much for being with me today. We are continuing our series on the Trinity. This is now part five, and we are looking into what other people said about Jesus. Now, if you are just joining us, we've had a lot of foundational episodes, so please go back and check those out on your own time when you have the time, because they're really, really important, especially the last one. I would say probably out of this entire series, I think that's probably one of the most important ones, which is what did Jesus say about himself? And we looked at a lot of the Gospel of John and some other places with what Jesus actually said about himself, undeniable proof that Jesus claimed to be God, that claimed to be equal with God, he claimed pre-existence, he claimed a divine origin, he appropriated the name of God, the self-existing name to himself, and even claimed the things that God claimed in the Old Testament. So very, very important episode, especially if you are struggling with the Trinity. Maybe you don't believe in it and you want to. Maybe you are a Muslim or a Mormon or Unitarian and you're questioning what you've been taught. Maybe you reject the Trinity and, and you're looking for reasons to reject it. And, and people have told you that Jesus never claimed to be God or never made himself to be equal with God. Please go check out that episode and check out some of the other previous episodes too, where we talk about foundational concepts with the Trinity, how the Trinity is involved in salvation and how the gospel has to be a Trinitarian gospel in order for, for it to work the way it does, how, you know, there's many objections against the Trinity, but they're really not founded on anything like the Trinity being pagan. That's not really founded on anything when you actually do the research and, and look into pagan beliefs. Nobody ever believed in a trinity. They believed in a you know, a triad of three gods, but the trinity is unique to the divine being that's revealed in the Bible as God, as the only God, as Yahweh. So today we are continuing this series and we're jumping into more and more detail. So again, if you are just new here, check out some of those previous episodes They'll be very edifying for you. But today we are looking at what other people have said about Jesus. Last episode was what he said about himself. And today we're looking at what other people testified about Christ. And today we're going to look at John, at the Apostle Paul, at uh, the Gospel of Matthew, at Jude, at the book of Hebrews. There's a lot in there. And we'll also look at the Old Testament parallels between Christ and Yahweh to see that, in fact, Jesus is Yahweh made flesh. And Yahweh is a tri-personal being, as we saw in those previous episodes, especially, like I said, in all these foundational things, we looked at how the Father and the Spirit are both separate persons and also God, and how the Spirit is not a force, but he is a person, and that person is also Yahweh. So without further ado, we have a lot to get into today. I really want to unpack all this stuff. It's going to be a lot of great information for you, especially, again, if you are struggling with this or maybe you believe in the Trinity and you just never really learned about it or you're looking for ways to support your beliefs. This is my goal for you today is to really see between yesterday or yesterday, last time, 
And this time, to see that between the testimony of Christ himself and those people who were immediately around him, or who testified about him, that everybody agreed that Jesus is God, and that's what the Bible teaches. But we begin with, of course, the beloved apostle, with John, and we start with the first chapter of John, which is very famous. We're just going to go through these line by line, and that's in John 1. And of course, very famous passage from John, a couple of verses, the Word became flesh. John 1, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All, th- all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Just these four verses alone, we could probably stop here and, you know, case closed. John believed that Jesus was the self-existing God of the Old Testament. Now, if we look at verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So much even just in this first verse. In the beginning was the Word. That means he wasn't created. He was before things were created, because how do you know? Well, in verse 3, he tells you all things were made through him. So if he was in the beginning and all things were made through him, then he's not created. Very important. But then you have, and the Word was God. So he created everything, he was before everything, and he was also God. He is God. And the Word was God. He was with God. Sorry, I read these in the opposite way. And the Word was with God. That means he was separate from God, meaning he's his own person. And the Word was God, meaning he's also God, and yet he's separate. So you, in the beginning of John, just the very first verse, it hearkens you back to Genesis, and it Again, it kind of fulfills that, because in Genesis, what do you have? Well, you have, we talked about these things, we'll talk about them in the future, but you have plural, Elohim, and the Spirit of God, separate from God, moving across the waters. You have you have the shadows of a multi-personal being from the very beginning. Of course, that wasn't revealed until the New Testament, but this is really what you see, and John is going back to that and giving you the full picture, which is that Jesus was the one who created the world. God the Father created through him. He's uncreated. He is God, but he's also separate from God in the sense that he's a separate person. All in one. Verse 3, he made, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So he's the one who created it, and he wasn't himself made, therefore he's self-existing. And you get another confirmation of that in verse 4, which is that in him was life. He's the source of life. And the life was the light of men. So in the first four verses of John, right away, he's very immediately clear about what he believes, or who, I should say, who he believes Jesus was. He's God. Very clearly so. Now, there's an objection that immediately comes up with this, which is that in the original language, the word So in John 1, verse 1, the words for God are different. It's theon and theos. We're going to look at this in very great detail here in just a second. But I want to pull up a couple things for you. So this is an article on theon versus theos in John 1. Now, if we look at the interlinear really quick, 
Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, Theon. And God was the Word. This is the original language. And so the in the original language, you have Theon kai Theos and Hologos. In other words, God and God was the Word. This is the, the literal word-for-word translation. So the argument is that Theon versus Theos somehow means that it's not talking about God. Like the word is some kind of different divinity or, or basically, I mean, people have all kinds of theories, but that's why we're going to apply some academic rigor to it and see what people who study the original language have to say. So this is an article uh, from a seasoned apologist. This is John 1, 1, Theon versus Theos. And you can read it, you know, these are pretty long articles, but I'm going to um, read just a little part in here. Okay, so it goes, I'm not one given to commenting on trending issues. However, there is this teaching that has been going around for some months now, attempting to deny the deity of Jesus Christ based on a claim that in the Koine Greek text of John 1, the word theos was used for the word, which is used for the word, is different in meaning from theon, used for God, as in God the Father. This person has tried to build his theology on the divinity of Christ based on this premise. This claim has continued to persist and progressively transmuting to a disturbing level, and at this point I am compelled to comment. So let's see what he has to say. Considering the claim, the following question becomes germane. Is this claim that theos and theon have different meanings and as such not the same true? So is this true that basically these two words mean different things? That John is trying to point to some distinction in godhood between Jesus and the Father. This is the premise, the basis of the assertion on the person of Jesus Christ, and as such needs to be scrutinized to either establish or debunk the assertion of this fellow. I don't know who it is, but I've run into people who believe this, and that's why I'm covering this in this episode. But moving on, it is common knowledge that the New Testament writings of the Bible from where the text under consideration is drawn from was originally written in Koine Greek. This implies that a knowledge of the grammar of that Koine Greek is necessary for anyone who appeals to the original language of the Bible, Septuagint and New Testament Koine Greek, to exegete the text. Right, so if you're going to make an argument that in the original language something happens, then you have to know grammar. So let's see. Anyone that truly understands Koine Greek will know that in studying the language, The first thing that you learn after learning the basic building blocks of the grammar, such as Greek alphabet, vowels, diphthongs, diuresis, consonants, clusters, accents, breathing marks, punctuation, syllabification, is the case system of Greek nouns. Greek is an incredibly complex language. I don't pretend to really know much of it, but it is important to do your homework on original language where you can and and see what other people have to say. Moving on, Greek is a highly inflected language. And the morphology of most words change depending on their grammatical category or syntactic function. When this type of change occurs in the verbal system to indicate a change in tense, aspect, person, voice, mood, and number of the word, it is called conjugation. Conversely, when such a change in morphology occurs in words, morphology is basically how is a word, you know, like shaped, like what's, what's the tense of the word, how is it spelled, that kind of stuff occurs in words within the noun system, nouns, pronouns, adjectives, adverbs, participles. As a result of change in their case, number, and gender, it is known as a declension. 
Koine Greek has five cases, nominative, genitive, dative, accusative, vocative. So these are just different cases and they operate by different rules. These functions of these cases stated here are basics since it will be out of scope to go into every detail of the complexity and the application of the case system. The change in the noun in John 1.1 from theon to theos for God in Greek is not because of any difference in meaning, but simply because the word was playing two different functions in a sentence. Very important. In the text under consideration, the word for God was spelt differently in the two instances because in the first instance, theon, the word was functioning in the accusative case where the second, whereas in the second occurrence, theos, it was in the predicate nominative. There are many other places in the New Testament where either form of the word is used for God without impinging on the force and reality of his divinity in any of those contexts. So theon and theos is used throughout the New Testament. They're, they're equal meaning in terms of divinity. Therefore, to say that theon is the supreme God and theos is the son and thus less than theon is crass ignorance. In fact, in the Greek construction of the grammar of the text, the word, oh, I can't read that, was carefully placed in the statement to emphatically stress the essence and quality of the word Jesus, as the same with the person of the God, with the person of God, which is the Father, and that the word has all the divine attributes of the Father and as such is God. So this is point is that John deliberately wrote what he wrote because he's trying to state a very important point about Jesus's divinity. Since the premise upon which the theology seeks to impinge on the divinity of Christ is false, there is no point trying to further argue or against the conclusion reached because the foundation of the supposition is faulty or not existent. So there's more in this article, but again, if we go back to the interlinear really quick, and you'll we'll learn some other, there's another important um, principle in Greek called the Granville Sharps rule. So we're going to look at that in just a second because that also may, up, may apply here as well. But again, it's in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, Theon. And God was the word. So how do you, how do you make sense of that? Is that basically saying he was in the beginning with God and God was the word. Well, wait a minute. If he was in the beginning with God, that's he's separate from God, in this case, the Father. But God was the Word as well. So you you can't make any sense of that unless, number one, Jesus is God. And number two, that necessitates a trinity because you have the Holy Spirit as God, which we covered. You have the Father as a separate person and you have Jesus as God, but also a separate person. That's the only way to make sense of it. That's what's being revealed here. But again, in English, the order of the words determines the object in a sentence. In Greek, they use cases to determine the object. So it's a very different grammar than we're, what we're used to. So in this case, theon is the accusative. That's the case it's in, which denotes the subject. And theos is nominative, predicate nominative, which is the object. They're basically just working grammatically in different ways, but they mean the same thing. The, the literal translation is, and God was the word. That would be the word-for-word word translation. And so, in the first instance of where theon is used, God is the subject of the sentence, and in the second instance, God is the object. It's kind of like using me and I. They both mean the same thing, but they they refer they work differently grammatically. 
When you say I, you say I in certain situations, you say me in other situations. It's not a perfect comparison, but it's the same thing. And the point is that the words mean the same thing. <clears throat> this objection that Theon and Thal somehow denotes some sort of separation within God. God the Father and God the Son, and God the Father is more God than God the Son is. This is not founded in anything, let alone actually Greek grammar. So if you hear it, make sure that you say that that's been debunked. But moving on, John 1, verse 14, a little bit later in John. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So here in John, we see that the word became flesh and that immediately connects the word to Jesus. I mean, it's obvious up until that point, but as if it wasn't obvious enough, the word who is God, who was with God in the beginning, who created the world, became flesh. That means the incarnation. So God equals the Son, equals Jesus, equals the incarnation. The Word made flesh. Now the word for dwelt is really interesting. If you look in the original language, uh, the word is skeno. Skeno. And that basically means tabernacled or made a tent with. And we know that Emmanuel was the name that was given to Mary to call Jesus in the sense like what was the, when people were given names in a sense, they were given names based on their their function, like their identity, right? Emmanuel means God with us. And so put it together, you basically, you have a picture of the incarnation where if you've studied, for example, biblical typology, like the Old Testament with the... Uh, sanctuary and the tabernacle there and how there's so many pictures of Christ with how basically within the tabernacle there was this beautiful place. You had, you know, obviously the the light, the prayers of incense, the bread, the showbread. You had really nice things in there. But then on the outside, the tabernacle was actually very rugged. It was It was very, you know, it had like badger skin. It wasn't anything that you would look at. And that's exactly what Isaiah says. One of the prophecies about Jesus is that there was nothing desirable about him that, that would make us desire his appearance. And yet he was divine. He was God. He is God. And so you have this duality where on the outside it seems as one thing, as a very average person that, that doesn't attract you in any way, which is just so fascinating. And yet on the inside you have God incarnate, which again, it's all these things relate to each other. When the word is tabernacled with us. I think that's really interesting in relationship to that Old Testament picture. And also the the name Emmanuel, which is God with us. God is with us. Not in some like, you know, philosophical way, but in, in a true living way. Like God became man, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now he also says in John 14, glory as of the only son from the father. This is, the, what this means is a matter-of-fact statement. It's not in the way that you and I would say, like, glory like the Son, only Son from the Father, as in kind of like, but not exactly quite. When John says glory as of the only Son from the Father, it's just, it's a matter-of-fact statement, as in saying that the Son is the Word, which became flesh, and the Word was God. Tie it all back to John, the first verses of John. So it's a chain of events that, that you can see that, okay, 
The Word was God. The Word was with God, meaning he's separate from God the Father, but still God. He created all things. He became flesh, and his glory was like the Son, as of the Son, uh, as of the only Son from the Father. So all these things are tied together into one reality, and it's a statement of fact that John is setting all of this up so you know what he believes about Jesus. That's the first important thing, isn't it? What do you believe about Christ if you're going to testify about him? Who was he to you? Now, a couple of verses later in John 1.18, this was a famous one. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So the only God is who? The only God is the one that's at the Father's side. But wait a minute, the Father is God because nobody's seen God. So again, how do you make sense of this? Well, if you read it in context with John 1, 1, where you have the word is God, but he's also with God, who is at the Father's side, the only God who is at the Father's side, he's confirming what he said in those first couple verses. Same thing again. You have a real dilemma if you reject the Trinity, if you reject the divinity of Christ, because John, and as you'll see everybody else pretty much that will cite today, believed that Jesus was God, like equal with God, as in the creator God. So what do you do with that? Well, you have, the only explanation is to have a trinity. Now, another thing that I want to bring your attention to with John 1, before we move on a little bit later to John, and that's that's the idea of this the word. Like, where did he get this, this name, the word? Logos. The word, some people have commented about this, and they, they've basically said that the word is a reference to the name of God. That the, that the Jews would have picked up on because Hebrews, Hebrews didn't have, so how does this work? Hebrews didn't have vowels. Uh, and so they didn't want to spell or get the name of God, the name of God wrong because that would be like a mortal sin. So they referred to it culturally to the name of God as the word, right? The Jews today do that. They say Hashem or Adonai for Lord, but you know, in John 17, verse 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So Jesus, a couple times, has has said, and especially in John 17, 6, that he's manifested God's name. The word became flesh. He's manifested God's name, God's identity. Then what goes in a name? A name is your identity. It's who you are. Remember when we talked about Jesus appropriating the name of God to himself in the last episode? That's why the Jews picked up stones to stone him, because they knew what was going on. He was appropriating the divine name, the word, <laughs> to himself. What did what did Yahweh tell Moses his name was? Says, I am the being one. His name was a was a direct relationship to God's self-existing nature, who he is. He's the source of all life. And so this has been a constant theme throughout the New Testament with Jesus. But in terms of John and other people writing about these things, when John chooses to say the word, he's, he's appealing to that cultural knowledge of the word, i.e. the name of God that you didn't want to make a mistake with. And so you have also, we'll look at this in a future episode, but we'll look at the Old Testament, how you have the word of the Lord. And how, the, and actually, the word of the Lord 
when it would come to prophets, things like that, the word of the Lord was personified a couple times for sure in the Old Testament, which again brings a lot of confusion if you if you insist that God is one person. God is one being, absolutely. But if you don't have the understanding of a multipersonal being, then you, you really run into some confusion with the Old Testament, with the angel of the Lord, with the word of the Lord, which is personified, which I'll, again, I'll show you in a future episode. But all these things point to this reality that John is touching on. This is a cultural reference to, again, point to Jesus' divinity. Jesus is the word, i.e. the name of God made flesh. Didn't he say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I've manifested your name. What's God's name? I am the being one. I am the source of life. So Jesus has manifested that in the physical world through the incarnation. I mean, it's really quite profound, but all of these things are being touched on by John. Like I said, you could probably spend a whole, you know, episode just on just on a few of these verses, just studying them. So I really, I've encouraged you in the past, if you've seen my other episodes, I encourage you with, again, with these verses, is to really do your own studies on these things um, and dive deeper because there's so much to really look into. It's It's really quite astounding. But one more verse in John is when, this is after the resurrection and Jesus appears to the apostles and Thomas, Thomas basically acknowledges Jesus as God. And this is a controversial verse, but we're going to look at the claims around this and how it's actually not really that controversial when you study the original language. But John 20, verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, just off the top of, right off the top, before we get into the original language and the grammar, if Thomas indeed answered Jesus, my Lord and my God, and both of these words, God and Lord, refer to the same person, meaning Thomas is calling Jesus God. What did Jesus do shortly after? Did he say, no, 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 don't call me God. That's that's only reserved for God, the Father. No, he accepted it. He said, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So he's acknowledging what Thomas said. So we have two things going on in this statement. First, we have to look at what Thomas said and see, okay, because the claim is that my Lord is talking about Jesus, and then, you know, Thomas is saying, oh, my God, as in the Father in heaven. So he's, he's referencing two persons. That's the claim. And if that's the case, this can't be used as a proof text that people like Thomas thought that Jesus was God. But if it can be proved otherwise, that the that my Lord and my God refer to the same person, i.e. the person standing in front of him, who's Jesus, then not only does this prove that Thomas believed that Jesus was God, and of course everybody around him, but that Jesus received worship as God and, you know, basically blessed Thomas for that and said that was a good thing. So you have to deal with that. And that's why we're going to look at the original language. Now, before we do that, I want to look at a couple things in the Old Testament where this phrase, my Lord and my God, is Thomas isn't just making this up. Remember, all these people, they were Second Temple Jews. They knew their scriptures. They knew very well all the words and what was said, and they studied them all the time. So Psalm 35, verse 23 through 24. Awake and rouse yourself, my 
for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. This is David speaking. Psalm 38, verse 15. But for you, O Lord, Yahweh, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. Very, very common phrasing. Later in Psalm 38, verse 21 through 22. Do not forsake me, O Lord. This is Yahweh. O my God, be not far away from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. So my Lord and my God is a common way to to refer to God, as in your creator. It's not referring, these phrases in the Psalms are not referring to two different people. And so now we have this, again, the same thing with Greek grammar. And we're going to look at this as the Granville Sharps rule because this is the principle that's being discussed here. There's a couple things to keep in mind, because the original language, they're both, the Lord and my God are the same um, case. They're in the nominative case, and we're going to see what all that means. But, okay. One One of Granville's letters, written in 1778, published 1798, propounded that what has come to be known as the Granville Sharp Rule in actuality, only the first of six principles that Sharp articulated involving the Greek article. Here's the Granville Sharp rule, so we understand what we're doing. When the copulative chi connects two nouns of the same case, if the article ho, or any of its cases precedent, precedes the first of the said nouns or participles, and is not repeated before the second noun or participle, the latter always relates to the same person that is expressed or described by the first noun or participle. Now, this sounds really like, like what, did, what did I just say here? We're going to break this down in just a second. This is an article on some other places by James White, if you know who he is. He's studied Greek quite a bit. But if we look at the interlin- interlinear for two, Second Peter 1 verse 1, we're going to look at some other verses, but this is a great example. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those equally precious with ours, having obtained a faith through the righteousness of the God of us, there's Theo, and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, in, in Greek, it says, through hemon kai soteros. So these, this, this linking word kai is very, very significant the God of us and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is who? He's the Savior and the God of us. Very, very important. We're going to look at some other verses, but in a second, I want to read this about uh, 2 Peter 1, verse 1. This is what we just read in Titus 2.13, so that we can come back to John and understand this in a, in a better better light. Section 1. Basically, <clears throat> Granville Sharp's rule states that when you have two nouns, which are not proper names, such as Cephas or Paul or Timothy, which are describing a person, and the two nouns are connected by the word and, or chi, and the first noun has the article, as in the, while the second does not have this article, what this means is both nouns are referring to the same person. In our text, this is demonstrated by the words God and Savior in Titus 2.13 and 2 Peter 1 verse 1. All of this is going to make sense. Just bear with me. God has the article. It is followed by the word and, and the word Savior does not have the article. Hence, both nouns are being applied to the same person, Jesus Christ. This rule is exceptionless in Greek. This is the important thing to understand. Granville Sharp rule, 
it, it, there's no exception to it. It is completely consistent. One must argue solely on theological grounds against these passages. There is truly no real grammatical objection that can be raised. Not that many have not attempted to do so and are still trying. However, the evidence is overwhelming in favor of the above interpretation. Let's look at some of the evidence from the text itself. In Titus 2.13, we see we first see that Paul's referring to the epiphania of the Lord, or the appearing, his appearing. Every other instance of this word is reserved for Christ and him alone. It is immediately followed by verse 14, which says, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people of his own possession, zealous for good, for good deeds. The obvious reference here is to Christ, who gave himself for us on the cross of Calvary. There is no hint here of a plural antecedent for the who of verse 14. It might also be mentioned that verse 14, while directly referring to Christ, is a paraphrase of some Old Testament passages that refer to Yahweh God. Psalm 130, verse 8, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, etc. One can hardly object to the identification of Christ as God when the apostle goes on to describe his works as the works of God. Very true. The passage found in 2 Peter 1, verse 1 is even more compelling. Some have simply bypassed grammatical rules and considerations and have decided for an inferior translation on the basis of verse 2, which they say clearly distinguishes between God and Christ. Such translation on the basis of theological prejudice is hardly commendable. The little book of 2 Peter contains a total of five Granville Sharp constructions. They are in verse 1, verse 11, chapter 2, verse 20, chapter 3, verse 2, and chapter 3, verse 18. No one would argue that the other four instances are exceptions to the rule. For example, in chapter 2, verse 20, it is obvious that both Lord and Savior are in reference to Christ. Such is the case in chapter 3, verse 2, as well as 3, verse 18. So all of these verses are talking about Jesus, and in the original language, it says Lord and Savior. And the grammatical construction is the same as in the very beginning, where it's 2 Peter 1, verse 1, where he says Lord and God, our God, our great God and Savior. So... You can't argue grammar because grammar, there's no support in the grammatical uh, the, the grammatical way of looking at it for the belief that Peter did not acknowledge Jesus as God. Moving on. No problem there, for the proper translation does not step on anyone's theological toes, of course. 1 verse 11 is even more striking. The translation, does, the construction here is identical to the construction found in 1 verse 1 with only one word being different. Here are the passages as they are transliterated into English. Peter 1, verse 1, 2 Peter 1, verse 1, to Theo hemon kai soteros Jesu Christo. This is 1, verse 11 now, to curio hemon kai soteros Jesu Christo. So on one, in, in verse, uh, chapter, gosh, chapter 1, verse 11 of Second Peter, they're basically identical sentences. The only thing that's different is between the word Theo, which is God, and Curio, which is Lord. So in one uh, chapter 1, verse 11, he's saying, you're Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But then in chapter 1, verse 1, he's saying, our Lord, our, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you see how arguing grammatical points just is not supported at all? Notice the exact one-to-one -one correspondence between these passages. The only difference is the substitution of Curio with Theo. No one would question the translation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in 1 verse 11. 
So why question the translation of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, at verse 1, verse 1? Chapter 1, verse 1. Consistency in translation demands that we not allow our personal prejudices to interfere with our rendering of God's word. Amen to that. And it's a very, very good article. I highly recommend. I'll put all these in the references. I'll put some videos, too, on the Granville Sharp Rule that you can go reference for yourself. But look, now if we go back to uh, John 20, verse 28... And we look at, for example, the original language. And he says, my Lord, Kyrio, and my God, Theo. Kyrios and Theos are in the nominative, nominative case. They're in the same case. And they're linked by and. And so it's pointing to the same person. This is the Granville Sharp Rule, and it basically tells you that Thomas, when he ex exclaimed what he exclaimed, he was referring to the same person, just like all the other apostles, like in the uh, letter to Titus, letters from Peter, in John's gospel, they all believed the same thing. So it's very important, again, when you have the Greek original language that you understand the Granville Sharp Rule, because... There's a lot of times when <clears throat> it's very, very important. And if you don't understand that and you try to pick apart the English translation with a preconceived bias that Unitarians have and non-Trinitarians have, then you will run into problems because that's not what the original language says. This ignores the Granville Sharp Rule, which has no exception. It ignores the testimony of the other places in Scripture. It ignores the testimony of Christ. So you have to read everything in context. Okay, so I want to jump to Paul next. And <clears throat> Paul has a lot of great things to say about the divinity and preeminence of Christ. So if we go to Colossians 1, verse 15, the, pre the preeminence of Christ. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, firstborn here, we'll talk about this, especially when we talk about the Son of God in the future episodes. But Firstborn does not mean he was created. Firstborn is a title of preeminence, meaning he's he's ahead of all things. For by him all things were created. So there you go. You can't be firstborn if you were the one who created everything. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He himself is not created. Verse 17, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So there you go. In case you didn't get it, he is before all things, meaning he is, he was existing in the beginning before all things. And another way you can understand it is he's before all things, like he's, he's preeminent. He's, he's the first in all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is the root. He's the source of life. He's self-existent. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, in the KJV, it says a little more clearly, I think, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. The fullness of deity was in Christ. The fullness of deity. And we see that again in Colossians in chapter 2, where Paul repeats this in, in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. This is actually a very relevant verse for this topic, because a lot of people have let 
false teachers, you know, teach them things with their itching ears. So get back to the scriptures because they testify of Jesus as God and the Holy Spirit as God. Verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Okay, you don't get that if you have a created being or kenosis where he emptied himself fully. You just don't get that. And you have been filled with him who is the head of all rule and authority. So he's the head of all rule and authority. You don't get that with a created being. And you also aren't filled with a created being. A created being is not omnipresent and, you know, fulfills everybody up and basically guides them and is everywhere, right? Now, in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, we're just going through these, and I want you just to pay attention to the overall pattern. But he, he mirrors these same attitudes throughout his letters. You, This is verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Remember we were just talking about how Jesus fills all things? He's, he's filling you with his Spirit. Well, here, again, it's now is the Spirit of God that dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So, wait a minute. He he fills all things. He he's filling you. He's got the, he's given you the spirit, but in fact, if the spirit of God dwells in you, but wait, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So which one is it? Well, God is a tripersonal being. That's how. That's the only way you can make sense of this. The spirit of God is the spirit of Christ because Christ is Yahweh, Yahweh revealed in human form through the second person of Yahweh, which is the Son. Romans 16, verse 20, the God of peace who will soon crush Satan under your feet, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, this is an interesting statement because it's a parallel to Genesis 3, 15, where God says, I will put enemy between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first time the gospel was announced, right in the beginning of the Bible. Isn't that interesting? This is the proto-gospel. And what did, he, what did God say? Well, he, the Messiah, the incarnation of God, will bruise your head, meaning death blow. But then Paul is applying that. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Who is the one that crushed Satan's head? It was Jesus. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the God of peace. He's the one being pointed to with this verse. Jesus is God. Paul believed that Jesus is God. Now, one more from Paul we have in Philippians, and these are just a few guys. I mean, ultimately, there's, again, I encourage you to study these things, but these are just a few. This is Philippians 2, verse 6. Actually, I'll start a little bit earlier. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So, Empty, he was in the form of God. Emptying himself and being becoming human and becoming incarnate doesn't mean that he relinquished divinity. He was in the form of God. He had to be in order for the incarnation to be the propitiation for sins for all time. This is the major problem with the atonement if you do not believe in a trinity, if you don't believe in the divinity of Christ. We talked about this in the second episode. If you don't have the eternal blood of God himself to pay for your sins, then you cannot live forever because eternity is infinite. And so the only 
value, there, there were different values for created beings when they were sacrificed, right? Pigeons weren't as worth as much as bulls. Babies, you don't sacrifice baby because they're made in the image of God, right? So ultimately, there was a value scale to life that God created, that he ordained. Well, obviously, on top of that entire scale is God because he's infinite value. He's, in, he's the source of life. And so in order for all sin of everybody who needed to be atoned for, for all time, so they could live forever, God had to sacrifice himself. He had to give his eternal blood so that that would pay for sin's infinite value for all time, for eternity. Do you see how that works? You have to have a divine slash human two natures incarnation, just like it was agreed upon almost 2,000 years ago, the early church at the Council of Chalcedon and, you know, Council of Nicaea and all these other councils, two natures, one person. And if you try to confuse the natures or split the person, you run into heresy, which we'll cover a lot of these heresies in some future episodes. But this is what it, this is what it's about. Jesus has two natures, divine nature and human nature. And that's integral to the atonement, because if you don't have a divine nature, then you don't have the propitiation for sins. If he was just a human being and he was sacrificed, that's not enough to appease the wrath of God. If he was a created being, it's not enough to appease the wrath of God for all time. Jesus being the divine Son of God, who is also God, and sacrificing himself was enough to appease the wrath of God for all time and for all sin. It's the only way. It's the only way. And ultimately, the Bible teaches you that over and over again, because Paul, like Peter, like John, they all saw that Jesus was God. Now, we looked at Titus. I didn't. I, we skimmed over this, but I want to go back to Titus 2.13 really quick, because this is Paul writing again. He says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, this is the Granville Sharps rule. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. They both refer to the same person because of the linking word and, and there's no second article before the second noun. There's no, it's not great God and the Savior, Jesus Christ. See how that would be translated? It doesn't say that. It says our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. They're both pointing to the same person. So did Paul believe that Jesus was God? Absolutely. As in the God, the only God. Of course, God is tripersonal, but Jesus was that God. And that's a mystery for us, but it's a profound and beautiful mystery because it means that we have a God that stepped into reality and revealed himself, which is Beyond any, nothing about God is comprehensible. Nothing is logical about God in terms of our own limited mindsets. And so if you can accept omnipresence, if you can accept tonky donkeys in the Old Testament, if you can accept the world being created in six days, like the Bible tells you, and so many other things, you know, an enormous flood, the, the sun standing still, all these things are supernatural. We live in a supernatural reality with a supernatural creator. And that creator made himself known. And if you put your faith in him, you'll have eternal life. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, this is just a brief mention, but again, it's important. All this took place to fulfill 
this is verse uh, chapter 1, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Now, Matthew reports on this, and the, this touches on a lot of things. First off, Gabriel announced this. So Gabriel believed, obviously, the prophecy, right? He, he had to be in on it. Gabriel said, you will call him Emmanuel, meaning God is with you, right? The prophet who spoke these words believed that the Messiah would have a divine component. We'll look at that in the Son of Man episode, the Son of God episode, how the, how the Messiah figure also had a divine component. It wasn't just a human component. Today, Judaism, which is not as old as Christianity, despite how many people think it is, it's, it's a splinter off from Hebrewism after Christianity exploded in the Middle East. Judaism is a result of the people who rejected Christ, and they created their own traditions, even though they claim they're back to the Israelites in, in the Hebrew Bible. That's not true. Judaism today believes in two messiahs, and it believes that anybody can be the messiah. It's, it's not like a divine thing where you have to have God come in the flesh. You know, that's just, oh, how can that be? Well, if you look at the Hebrew scriptures, that's exactly what they testify of. God coming in the flesh. How do you make of the angel of the Lord, who was God, but also in the flesh? He was a person, a personal appearance of God. That's why they had the two powers in heaven theory. And so Judaism is not in agreement with its own supposed traditions that it claims. But the point is this, Emmanuel is being God with us. That was a test of testimony or a testament or a, or a prophecy of the incarnation through a prophet, through the angel Gabriel, and through the writer of the Gospel of Matthew. You have three people attesting to this reality of the incarnation where you have God and man, two natures. Very profound. Now, in the book of Jude, you also have a, a few things that are worth noting in Jude 1, verse 24 through 25, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory, with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now, again, this is talking about the same person through and through, very consistently so. The only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Now, we know in John 17 that Jesus said, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And this is before that verse where he said, I've manifested your name. So let's put a couple other things together. We know that in Micah, we, we mentioned this verse before, but a ruler to be born in Bethlehem, a prophecy of the Messiah, that's what I was just talking about. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming is forth, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days, meaning he's timeless, he's preexistent. There was a quality to the Messiah that was not just human. Very important. This is in the Old Testament, Micah 5, verse 2. So we know that God shares his glory with no one. Jesus asked to be glorified again with the glory that he had prior in heaven with God. So he's pre-existent. He's claiming pre-existence. God doesn't share his glory with anybody. So what's going on here? 
Jude is saying all the glory go to Jesus Christ and basically interchangeably using him with God and the Savior. What is How do you explain all these things? And the, and the answer again and again is you explain it with the Trinity. You explain it that with God is one being, Yahweh, but he exists in three persons. How that works in our tiny little brains is probably not something we'll ever understand fully, but you're dealing with God. I mean, God is infinite. God is beyond human comprehension, and that's the point. But nonetheless, this is what the Bible forces you into. We've said this over and over again. The Bible forces you into a Trinitarian perspective. Now, I want to look at the book of Hebrews for a couple things, and then we have some Old Testament parallels to Christ as Yahweh, which are also very interesting. But Hebrews has a lot of stuff in it, and particularly in the first chapter and the third chapter. So there's we're just going to look at a couple things. Again, there's so much to look at. There really is, but again, it's the overall pattern is just the same every single time. The Bible teaches that Jesus is God, that he claimed to be God, and that others around him and who were testifying about him later believed that he was God. So in Hebrews 1, <clears throat> particularly uh, 1 through 13, we're just going to read it and then we're going to come back to the verses. Okay, the supremacy of God's Son. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. That's confirmation of all the other things we just saw in John and other places with Paul. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name as he inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flaming fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth. In the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will all be changed. But you are the same, and your ears will have your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? There is so much going on in these verses, but we're going to break down a few of them here. In verse uh, 3, where he says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, an exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Well, a created being doesn't uphold the universe by the word of his power. I mean, this is this is attributed only to God. And when when he's using this language, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is like, again, you have to understand, compare and contrast as a function in the Bible constantly. There is a constant compare and contrast, especially when you're dealing with typology or you're you're dealing with Jesus and how he fulfilled things. 
all the shadows of the Old Testament, you know, it's like when like Hebrews talks about these things or in other places where the writers compare Jesus to Old Testament realities. But Hebrews is a big one because there's a lot about how, hey, look, all these pictures of the Old Testament, like the high priest, like the temple sacrifices, well, yeah, they were they were fine, but Jesus is now the fulfillment of those things. He is like that, but way better. And he's he's the fulfillment. So when he when the author says here he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, it's a parallel with being created in the image of God. Like mankind is created in the image of God, but Jesus is the incarnate version of God. Like again, if if Jesus said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Like literally, I am the exact imprint of God's nature. It's 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 taking this idea of being made in the image of. Of course, Jesus isn't made, but the incarnation is the revelation of who God is exactly, which is such a profound, such a profound statement. But in Hebrews 1 verse 6, and then kind of some of the following verses, you have a lot of quotations of various Old Testament passages. So in Hebrews 1 6 says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. This is quoting Deuteronomy 32 verse 43. And it's applying all these things to Jesus. He's the author's applying all these things. But again, you don't worship created beings. You don't, when he, when he says, again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, this is talking about the incarnation, not that Jesus was born, you know, and just was created in some way. No, the firstborn meaning that the preeminent being of all the universe, which is God, taking on human flesh, when he comes into the world, let all God's angels worship him. Well, yeah, because he's God. You don't worship anything other than God. Otherwise, you're breaking the first commandment, which is, again, very, very important. Firstborn is figurative, and we know that from other places. Now, in Colossians 1, verse 18, we just read this, but, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. This is a figurative phrase is talking about that in everything he might be preeminent. Firstborn is about preeminence. Very, very important. But worship is only for God. And we know that Jesus, we talked about this in a previous episode, but in Matthew 14, after the apostle saw the ghost and he or he, he calmed the storm, Jesus received worship. Verse 33, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Did Jesus rebuke them for worshiping him? No, Jesus did not rebuke them. He accepted the worship. So again, the Bible puts you into a pickle here because if you're commanded, you can only worship God. You can't worship anything else or anyone else. And the Bible's telling you basically that the apostles worshiped Jesus and Jesus isn't rebuking them. And that the firstborn of creation, meaning the preeminent one, the one who's incarnate, Jesus Christ, let all the angels worship him. How do you deal with that? You can't deal with that unless Jesus is God, at the same God that's in the Old Testament, Yahweh. But obviously he's different than the Father, so how do you fit that into a, a model to understand God's being? Well, you fit it into the Trinity. It's the only way. Now later in verse 8, <clears throat> there's a lot of verses that are appropriate to the Son, and they're very telling. I think this is probably the meat and potatoes of this chapter, this section, but let's check them out. Verse 8, it says, But of the Son, he says, 
Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So this is this is quoting um, Psalm 45, 6 through 7. And the author is saying that the scripture is saying this of the Son. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, meaning he is God. It's applying that that psalm to Jesus. It's also applying Psalm 102, if we go to Psalm 102 really quick. Verse 24, O my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, who you whose years endure throughout all generations, meaning you live forever. You're self-existent. We learned about this a little bit later, where in verse 11 he says, they will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. So of the Son, he's calling this, he's appropriating verses that are talking about God to the Son. He's appropriating living forever to the Son, so being self-existing. And he also appropriates creating the foundation of the earth. This is verse 10. And, and you, Lord, lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So notice what he said. But of the Son, he says, comma. Now there's a psalm that he inserts. This is Psalm 45. Then he goes, and, comma. Here's another thing that's being referenced. And it's referencing Isaiah 44. If we go to Isaiah 44, really quick, verse, uh, verse 24, thus says the Lord Yahweh, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread the earth by myself. So this is, who is talking here in Isaiah? This is Yahweh talking, the only God. He's saying, I am the Lord Yahweh. I am who I am. He's giving his name. What's his function? Who made all things, who alone stretched out all the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. So you know to associate the act of creation to God, God Almighty. But this whole thing about God alone stretching out the heavens is being applied by the author of Hebrews to the Son. But of the Son, he says, comma, we quoted that psalm, and you, Lord, lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So he's applying Isaiah 44 to the Son. Do you see what's going on here? There's so much scripture, Old Testament scripture, is being applied to Jesus. Of course, in Hebrews, and later in Hebrews, this is touched on again with this with the whole, I think, that God is the builder. Hebrews 3, verse 3 says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Again, compare and contrast. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So again, who is the creator? Who's the builder? It's God. But the builder of the house, do you see what's going on here? For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Again, comparing the old covenant to the new covenant. Jesus is better in every single way. Moses is the house. Jesus is the builder of the house. It, he's trying to compare completely two different realities. Jesus is the builder. God is the builder. We know Jesus was a mason. He was a carpenter. He was dealing with rocks and wood and 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 construction. So he's, even in his earthly life, he was a creator. He was a builder. He was building things. And of course, Jesus 
created the world and he created Moses. He built Moses. So that's an accurate statement. That's what it, that's what this is trying to say. That Jesus is the creator. He's the one that you were worshiping in the Old Testament. Don't you get it? Don't be hard of heart and stick with the law because the creator has shown himself and paid the debt that you could never pay through the law. Embrace the new covenant. This is what Hebrews is all about. It's it's addressed to hardened or skeptical Jews who are trying to still stick to the law even though the new covenant has come. And so there's a lot of parallels in Hebrews about Jesus being better than all these Old Testament pictures and fulfilling them. Now in verse 13 of Hebrews uh, 1, it says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is quoting Psalm 110. And... In 110, it's it's a messianic psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is, by the way, if you haven't seen my end times series, go check that out, please. It's danceoflife.com slash end times. Learn the truth about the end times because the millennial kingdom is not some future physical reign of Jesus on the throne of Jerusalem, but Jesus is ruling as king right now. It's a spiritual millennium. And when he returns... He gives the kingdom back to the Father. The triune God rules through Jesus' body on earth. It's going to be eternity at that point, but the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's 1 Corinthians 15. Through the resurrection, when Jesus returns, everybody's going to be resurrected. Death is destroyed at that point. That's the last enemy. So the enemies have been put under his feet by that point. So the future millennium idea is a deception. But anyway, not to go off on a tangent, but that's what this reminded me of. But in Matthew, in Matthew 22, Jesus stumps the Pharisees with this whole idea again about this Messiah being just human. It's a very important interchange that relates to Psalm 110. And let's go up to Matthew 22, verse 42, actually 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And he said to them in return, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, Jesus is quoting Psalm 110. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. And so Jesus basically pointed to this reality that was being revealed in the Old Testament, which again, two powers in heaven. How do you deal with what the Old Testament tells you? Even people like David, who didn't have the full revelation, understood something to be happening. Something to be happening where God was, there was one God, but he was multi-personal. Jesus put, he put it right in their face. How can David in the spirit call him Lord if basically it's just his son. Well, nobody could answer that. Nobody could answer it because they didn't understand that the Messiah that was promised was, yes, human. He had a human nature, but he was also Lord. He was also God. So much so that David called him Lord and distinguished between the father and the son without understanding really what he was distinguishing fully, obviously. Just like most of the prophets, they didn't 
really understand, I should say all the prophets didn't understand fully everything they were given. They were just given things and they were relaying them. John didn't understand what mystery Babylon would be, but he saw a vision and he related and he was in the spirit and he communicated it. So same thing with David and what David was pointing to, I should say what Christ is pointing to here and echoing same thing in, in Hebrews 1 verse 13 the point is that the Messiah is God. He's divine. He's the Lord, the Lord of the Old Testament. And with that, I want to move to the Old Testament parallels to Christ and paralleling Christ as Yahweh. And there's a lot of good ones here. Again, if, you, if you've if you studied the Old Testament, you know exactly that the Old Testament and the New Testament are completely consistent with one another. You can see the pictures that are painted in the Old Testament, how they're revealed in Christ. And this is just, there's so many of these. I'm just going to touch on a few of them. Again, I, I highly recommend that you look into these things, typology of the Old Testament, how it points to Christ. But nonetheless, in Zechariah, and these aren't in order necessarily, but Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, and I will, him whom they have pierced, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This is, talk, first off, who is speaking here? This is Yahweh speaking. And yet he's speaking of being pierced and he's going to pour out a spirit of grace. So they weep over a firstborn. Firstborn, again, touches on this idea of preeminence and also the only begotten Son of God. I mean, there's so many themes going on in here that are really, truly beautiful. But again, this is Yahweh speaking. And then we know that Jesus was the one that was pierced. Now in Genesis 18, verse 25, we see this theme of judge, of, of God being the judge. For Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put me, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare is the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And this is talking about who's the judge of all the earth. This is Yahweh. This is the this is the only God. He's the judge. And of course, this is Abraham talking to the Lord about Sodom and everything that's going to happen there. He's trying to say, hey, <laughs> this is actually, it's an interesting interchange between Abraham because he's saying, well, what about 50? Would you not judge it if there was 50 righteous people? What about 45? What about 40? And it just shows God's patience, but I think that also shows and reveals that God, if there were righteous people there, he would be merciful, but there was none righteous other than Lot. Lot was saved, but God is the judge of the earth. And in five chapter, John 5, chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus says, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. So you have God as the judge in the Old Testament, Yahweh is the judge, but in the New Testament, it's the son who is doing the judging. So how do you, what do you make of that? Well, you make of it that the son is also Yahweh. That's what you make of it. King and king of Lord of Lords. In the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, and it says, And the Lord Yahweh said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. This is such an important point, and we'll touch, we'll, we'll come back to this in just a second. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. For the Lord Yahweh your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, 
the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. So again, he's, he's the judge, he's the Lord of lords, and he's the king. Psalm 136, verse 3, give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever. So this title, Lord of lords, in fact, if you look before that in Psalm 136, verse 2, it says, give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. So God of gods, Lord of lord, king of kings, you know, in Samuel, Jesus, uh, yeah, Jesus basically said, they rejected me as king. They, they had a spiritual king. The Israelites had a spiritual king, but they wanted a, a physical king, just like, you know, all the other nations. They wanted to be just like all the other nations when, when instead they had the best thing ever. And so this is the point. Jesus was king already. They rejected him as king spiritually. God gave them a physical line of kings to show them that having a human king is flawed. It's always going to lead to problems unless God is king over you physically. And God used it for the good to reveal his future plan as the Messiah. But that's why God, Jesus, is king now. He's back to where he was in heaven, ruling as king. And when he returned, he, right now we are in that period in Psalm 10 where the enemies are being put under his feet. Do you see why this is so important? Because if you believe in a future millennium, where Christ has to rule in Jerusalem for a thousand literal years, while there's still sin and death, that sets you up for the Antichrist. That sets, that sets you up for a false Christ, a false golden age, a false millennium. And I talk about that in my end time series, so I don't want to digress, but go check that out. Plenty of good stuff in there to edify you on the true nature of the end times. But Lord of Lords, King of Kings, God of Gods, now, the book of Revelation, Revelation 17, verse 14 they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who those with him are called chosen and faithful. So the Lamb is the same title as the Yahweh in the Old Testament, the Lord of lords, King of kings. Revelation 19, verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is an obvious appropriation to Yahweh. Any person reading this at that time, especially if you were Jewish and you knew your Old Testament, like John did, who is intentionally writing these things to basically say, look, this is this is Yahweh incarnate. This is what you're dealing with here. They would have understood that John is saying, this is God. God is, is going to come back and bring judgment and he's going to be on a white horse and he's going to be resurrecting people, this is God. And this is the God who came and died as well. This is the reality that the Bible is teaching you, that Jesus is Yahweh, that he is God. And it's obvious from all these appropriations. <clears throat> now, of course, in Isaiah and so many other places, God is the Savior. Isaiah 45, verse 21, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord, Yahweh? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. How many times has God said, I am the Savior, nobody can save you. There's nobody can deliver you out of God's hand. He's the Savior. And conversely, because he's the Savior, no, if, if he's going to judge you and you reject him, nobody can save you from him. That's the whole point. But in the Old Testament, everybody knew God was Savior. And yet in the New Testament, which we, what we just read, letter from Titus chapter, letter to Titus, actually chapter two, verse 13, 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who is appearing? Now, if you read this as appearing of the glory of our great God, meaning the Father and the Son are appearing, well, the, the Father is not appearing. It's the Son that's appearing. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. That means that the Son is also God. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. He's the Yahweh. He's the Savior of the Old Testament. And that's what the Bible tells you with all these parallels. Another interesting one is the Holy One, which is in Isaiah 49. Again, these are Old Testament realities where there's there's confusion if you don't understand the Trinity. And of course, you can imagine during their time where they didn't have the revelation of time to see all these things like we do today. We're very blessed we can look back on the quarter of time and say, okay, how did these things evolve and what do we believe now? But in their time, they didn't understand these things. That's why they had the two powers in heaven. That's why they didn't really understand the fullness of the being of God, right, as a triune being. But it says this in Isaiah 49, verse 7, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, separate. So here's Yahweh and then here's Yahweh's Holy One. What's that all about? To one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord Yahweh, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. So this is really interesting because in this verse, again, when we get to the Old Testament and talk about the angel of the Lord, this will hopefully make more sense in context. But you have these times throughout the Old Testament where the angel of the Lord is speaking of himself as God, and then suddenly he speaks of God, Yahweh, in the third person. So there's this like synchrony and then dyssynchrony, synchrony, dyssynchrony. And it's it's very confusing in the sense if you don't understand the Trinity, if you don't understand what's going on, and you read that back into what's actually going on and, and with the full revelation of Christ— but in this verse, in, in, the Holy One of Israel has always been mentioned throughout the Old Testament. But in here specifically, what's interesting is you have, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, separate. But then later towards the verse, it says, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. So Yahweh, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, meaning the Holy One of Israel is Yahweh, but then in the beginning, it says, thus says the Lord Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, separate from Yahweh. Do you see do You see the same shadows that we saw in the first chapter of John, that we saw in Paul's writings, in Hebrews? <clears throat> Jesus is God, but separate from the Father. Yahweh is one being, but has separation of persons within himself. This is the revelation that we have. Now, we also have the shepherd. The shepherd is a big theme, and of course, Jesus said he's the good shepherd. But let's take a look at the shepherd, and this, this, is, this is just a few. There's so many with God being the shepherd. <clears throat> the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 23, very popular verse. Psalm 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. God is the, sh- Yahweh is the shepherd of Israel. Isaiah 40 verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs of his lambs in his arms 
He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with the young. Very, very important. And of course, in Ezekiel, Ezekiel is this long passage about the shepherd, God is the shepherd, and there's this interchange between, you know, God actively speaking about himself and then the third person. So it's very interesting. We're going to read this. This is Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 10 through about, I believe, let's say 24. So let's let's read these verses because they're they're very, very interesting. Again, these are Old Testament attitudes and shadows that are pointing to a triune being. Verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, plural, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. So false teachers, false shepherds, God is going to come in and rescue them. This is Yahweh speaking. Next section, the Lord God will seek them out. Verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. So God is speaking. Pay attention to the language. I myself will do it. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them with the from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. This is another thing we remember, just put that in the back burner. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture? and to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet. And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink down and drink down what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push it with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Now, wait a minute. One more verse and we're done. And I, the Lord, Yahweh, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. And I am the Lord, I have spoken. Now, a couple things. This is These last two verses are so critical. First and foremost, David was dead by this point, so this is not talking about David. It's talking about the Messiah. But up until verse 23, what was happening? God was doing all the work. I'm going to be the shepherd. I'm going to be the one to feed the sheep. I'm going to be the one to destroy the false shepherds that are leading the people astray, like the Pharisees. 
I'm going to do it all. I will rescue my flock. And then suddenly, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, I will judge between the sheep and the goats. Do you remember when Jesus said that? That the son of man is the one who's the father committed judgment to, and he's going to ask the sheep to go to his right hand, the goats to go to his left. Remember that whole verse? That's in Ezekiel. And so how do you make sense of that? And then in verse 23, he says, I will, and now Yahweh says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, i.e. the Messiah, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. Now, wait a minute, I said God was going to be their shepherd. Yahweh was going to be their shepherd. Now the Messiah is going to be the shepherd? Well, the only way you make sense of that is that Yahweh is the Messiah. The Messiah is Yahweh. Do you see how this works? And of course, the last verse says, and I, the Lord, Yahweh, will be their God. Of course, because the Messiah is God. The Messiah has a divine component, has a divine nature. And my servant David shall be prince among them. So you have, again, going back to 1 Corinthians 15. When Jesus returns, he delivers the kingdom back to God the Father so that God may be all in all. The triune God will rule through the body of Jesus on earth for eternity. That's how you make sense of all of this, in that God is telling you he's going to be their shepherd, he's doing all the work, and then suddenly you have basically a verse that flips everything upside, you know, in an unexpected way, I should say. It flips it, you know, flips the script, telling you that basically, oh, well, the Messiah is going to be the shepherd, and I will be their God. Well, how does that work? Well, it works that Yahweh is multipersonal and he's speaking in a multipersonal way. That's the only way to understand that. Of course, we can hardly comprehend that, but that's what the Bible forces you into. Of course, Jesus said he's the good shepherd, that he's going to judge between the uh, sheep and the goats. This is in John 10, verse 11 through 18. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own knows me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So, so much going on here. Obviously, you can tell the parallels between this and Ezekiel 37. Jesus is revealing to you, he's the one that this passage in Ezekiel was talking about. He's the good shepherd that Ezekiel's prophet, he's the son of David. He's the one that's come to rescue the sheep. But that one has a human nature and a God nature. Remember what he asked the Pharisees. How can David call him Lord if he's just his son? And they couldn't answer him because they didn't realize that the profound nature of the incarnation, that Jesus was both human that the Messiah was both human and God. Today, the Jews still believe in two Messiahs. And again, they don't even believe in the divine Messiah. They just believe in two Messiahs. And because of the functions, one has to be 
Ben Joseph and suffer, where the other one has to be Ben David and conquer. But the Messiah is so much more than that. The Messiah is a divine being as well as a human being, a suffering being as well as a conquering one. And this is something that the Jews still trip up over, and they tripped over 2,000 years ago because people couldn't understand how that could be. How could God come down and suffer like that? Well, he did because he did so to vindicate the name of God first and foremost, and then to pay for sins where we couldn't pay because he's merciful and loving. But Jesus is the good shepherd, and the good shepherd was a big theme in the Old Testament for Yahweh. Yahweh is the shepherd of Israel, and Jesus is saying that he's the good shepherd. So how do you how do you make sense of that? Well, you make sense of it that Jesus is Yahweh. That's how you make sense of it. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says that the rock is Jesus, or the, the rock is God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. So God is the rock. Throughout the Old Testament, very clear that God is the rock. And of course, this is another reason why the whole Catholic teaching on the popes is totally wrong, because the rock has always been appropriated to Yahweh, and Jesus is the rock. But that's a whole other topic we talk about in the end times. So go check that series out. But in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 through 4, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. This is the Exodus. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. What is Paul saying here? That the Old Testament, the person who delivered the Jews, the Hebrews, out of out of uh, Egypt, out of, through the Exodus, was Jesus. He was the rock. And there's other places that confirm this too. But the rock, always about Yahweh. In the New Testament, we see that the rock is Christ. Very, very important. Also, as the, as the word Father, in Isaiah 9, verse 6, another prophecy about the Messiah, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Look at all of these titles. Remember, the name that somebody has and is given, especially in the context of these writings, is not their literal name, but what's their identity? What do they do? What's the nature of their being? What's their ontology? If you remember ontology and economy, names are a way to identify these things. So in the prophecy of the Messiah, Again, you have you can't anybody who's going to argue that the Hebrews never expected a divine Messiah, you're wrong. You're simply wrong. Look at the Old Testament. This is one of those passages. What is his name? His name is going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. God Almighty. That's going to be his name in, in the sense that he's that's his identity. He's God. Nothing less. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Now Father is denoted as a title for God. We looked at that in one of the first episodes, second episode, I believe, or maybe it was the third episode, yeah, with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But Everlasting Father is a title that's obviously pointing to God, God Almighty. doesn't mean that Jesus is the Father. It just means this is his identity. He's God. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
All that the Father has is mine. How many times does he have to tell you that him and the Father are the same quality? They are both God. Same God, Yahweh, but just different persons. And again, this is Old Testament language that points to this reality that's revealed in Christ. Another last one is God with us, God being with us in the sense of the incarnation. In Exodus 25, verse 8 through 9, we have the the tabernacle, which is, again, symbolic of Jesus. It says, And let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This is the tabernacle that was made so that God could come down and have his presence in the Holy of Holies. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Again, if you study the pattern of the tabernacle, it's the reason God is so specific about these things is because these things are supposed to be pictures for Christ. It all comes back to Jesus. The, the, the incarnation is the most profound thing that's ever happened in human history. It's the reason that we exist. And so all of these things were just pointing to that reality so that when it, when it finally happened, people could go back and say, oh, ding, 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 and connect all of these pictures. So study the, the typology of the tabernacle and how it shows and points to the nature of the incarnation where you have on the outside somebody that is just a human being, doesn't have anything that's desired about him. He's homeless practically, right? And on the inside... There is divinity and beauty and just unspeakable mystery. But this is the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And we know in Matthew, we looked at that where you shall call his name Emmanuel, God is with us. In John 1.14, where the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, in the sense that the word there is tabernacled. The, The Greek word is the word for tabernacle, meaning made a tent with us which again points back to this reality of of the tabernacle in the Old Testament where it had this duality of inside it looked divine, obviously, right? And on the outside it was very plain and ordinary. But we also know this is fulfilled in Revelation 21 verse 3. And it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Now who is coming back? Who's coming back and ruling and and basically being on earth? It's Jesus. Jesus is coming back. God himself will be with them as their God. Jesus is God. Jesus is coming back to be with you, to rule, to give the kingdom back to the Father, but then so God can be all in all. God's going to be in everything. In Jesus, we're going to be having transformed bodies full of the Holy Spirit, conformed to the image of Christ, God will be all in all. He'll be in everything. He'll be no more evil. But nonetheless, it will be the body of Jesus. It'll be Jesus returning, and that will be God with us in the sense, in the final complete sense, in the manifested sense of an eternal paradise where God is with us. That's the whole point and the promise of the gospel. But in Isaiah 40 is another Part of this, which is, again, very, very interesting, where it was was predicting John the Baptist's ministry. In Isaiah 40, verse 3, it says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So this is Isaiah prophesying about John the Baptist, who will announce basically the, the coming of the Messiah. 
But what is he saying? What is he saying in terms of what John the Baptist will say? Well, John the Baptist is saying, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, Yahweh. Prepare Yahweh's way. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Our God is coming. Our God is coming. Yahweh is coming. And in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, John the Baptist prepares the way. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So this is appropriating the actions of John the Baptist in terms of preparing the way for Jesus with what Isaiah said about preparing the way for Yahweh. Now here in Matthew, it's translated as Lord, as in just lowercase L-O-R-D, but in Isaiah, it's Lord as in Yahweh. Prepare the way of Yahweh. Make, make Make a highway for our God. So who is coming? It's God that's coming. See what, see what the point is here? So God is with us both in the incarnation, both in this period of time where he's ruling while his enemies are put under his feet. He's with us through the Holy Spirit. And he's going to be with us when he returns as Jesus Christ in the body of Jesus, glorified body, to rule all the universe on heaven forever in a renewed creation. That's what's on the horizon, and that's because God is with us. The, the Bible goes full circle from when Adam and Eve were with God and there was no separation to all the things that happened and then back to paradise, except this time it's a renewed paradise with new awareness and a context for that existence so that you understand the price and the glory of how you got there. And that's a beautiful thing. So what do we make of all this? What are the conclusions of all these verses? And I've given you plenty of evidence. There's actually plenty more than what we've covered. But I know that this was quite a lot of information to digest. So if you have any questions, feel free to put them in the comments. You can email me. I'm happy to dialogue with you about these things. But we know from all the things we looked at that John, Peter, Paul, Jude, Hebrews, the angel Gabriel, everybody spoke of Jesus as God that he was Yahweh. He is Yahweh. We know that the word God is used for both the Father and the Son. And we know that the writers of the New Testament believe that Jesus was God, which was the same God as the Old Testament. And we see also very clearly from the passages in the Old Testament how Jesus fulfilled those passages very clearly that he is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Where Yahweh speaks in the Old Testament Jesus fulfills it and reveals it. Where the prophets speak about Yahweh coming and prepare the way for our God, that's what John the Baptist was preparing for because Jesus was coming. Jesus is God. This is the whole point. This is the great revelation of Christianity. And there is not a single person who wrote the Bible who, you know, the prophets all believed that there was some divine aspect and they prophesied There was some divine aspect of the Messiah. Now, of course, the prophets didn't have the full revelation. And so there's lights and shadows and and contours that, that are murky in the Old Testament. But then you have the New Testament where this is revealed, and it's very clear that all the authors of the New Testament believed unequivocally that Jesus is God. 
There's no question about it. And if we are going to appeal to grammar or other things like this, then we really have to know our grammar because grammar is not in favor of Unitarian or non-Trinitarian interpretations. In fact, grammar unequivocally shows that people like Peter, like Paul, when they wrote letters, they treated Jesus as God in the very beginning of their letters. And that that's just proven by grammar because there's no exceptions to the Granville-Sharp rule. So, I hope you've gotten something out of today's episode because ultimately we have to be familiar with what Jesus said about himself and what others testified about Jesus. Like I said, I think these two episodes alone are probably the most important in this whole series. To know what Jesus said about himself and to know what others testified about Jesus is that the Bible teaches you that Jesus is God. The Bible teaches you that Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament revealed in human form through the person and body of Jesus, of Yeshua. That person is going to come back and God as a triune being will rule through that body and we will be in a perfect heaven and earth paradise where we can see God manifest in a physical body. I mean, it's just a, it's a profound reality, but God is going to be with us. That's what Revelation says. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. It's not the other way around. We're not going to heaven in eternity. God is coming down to live with us. And that's the profound truth that the Bible testifies to, because Jesus is God. So I hope you've gotten something out of today. I hope today has been edifying for you. If you're struggling with the Trinity, I hope that you've seen that the Bible teaches this over and over again, that everybody believed that Jesus is God. And of course, if you are doubting that the Holy Spirit is God, go back to that previous episode we just had, where we looked at the Father and the Spirit as God, how the Holy Spirit, although he's not the superstar of the show, he's not focused on very much in that sense, there is ongoing and ongoing evidence, both from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, that spirits are personal always, that the Spirit has personal qualities, that he has a will, that he has self-awareness, that he has emotions, that he commands, that he gets obeyed, that he gets blasphemed. There's so many pieces of evidence that, again, if you're thinking that the Holy Spirit is either a force or some abstract thing or, you know, something else other than a person, it's really hard to justify. The Bible forces you into a trinity, and although we can't fully understand it or comprehend it, we can marvel at it, and I think that's the whole point. Hey, thanks for being here. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure you hit that subscribe button. And if you want in-depth Bible studies, free resources, encouragement, or if you just want to get in touch with me, check out danceoflife.com. Until next time, God bless.